0: Rochester Life. Our scripture reading today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 12. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so, man also comes through woman, but all things are from God.
1: So the last couple weeks, we have been looking at a series we've called Church problems. We've been looking at the letter that Paul wrote um, to the Corinthians. Um, we find it in the book of First Corinthians, and actually it's the second letter that Paul had written to this church in Corinth. Just to give a little review, you know, this city of Corinth is located right on the water. It's a port city. There's a lot of action, there's a lot of commerce, a lot of things are going on in this big city. And um, Paul, and some of the challenges that come with with big city life is filtered into the church. And so Paul's had to address different issues. We've talked about divisions that have come. We've talked about sexuality. Paul's addressed matters of freedoms and liberties, trying to determine what's right and wrong to do. And we find that the, the, the Jewish and the Greek cultures have clashed in this city and in this church. Um, there's people that see things from different perspectives, different ideas. And so um, we come to another matter that Paul addresses here, and as you've already heard um, through the reading of Scripture, that this is a passage of Scripture that's challenging for most churches in our context and in our culture to navigate. Um, we're calling this uh, message, the subtitling it, "Drawing Lines." Um, what lines have you drawn? Which lines uh, in the? Same have you had to draw to make a point? How about what lines on paper or on canvas um, have you created um, for the sake of inspiration? What lines on a chalkboard have you had to write um, because you got in trouble? What lines on the pavement have you created when you got a little uh, careless in your car? Um, We're talking about drawing lines and sometimes lines that are drawn without thought or without prayer can sometimes get us into trouble. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about a couple different lines that we tend to struggle with, not only in our culture, but also in the church. Um, some of the struggles that we are going to be addressing today um, actually um, have kind of landed on us right again here in the 21st century. Um, and we might even be shocked to realize that some of the same challenges that we have in today's culture uh, were being dealt with back 2,000 years ago. When When Paul wrote this letter. So we're going to be covering this passage of scripture that is rarely read out loud in church because it's just hard to explain in our culture. We'd rather move past it um, and only explain it away if we need to. In fact, uh, I'll have to admit, I don't know that I've ever preached or spoken, taught a message um, from this passage of scripture um, when we're talking about women and men and head coverings and what ought to be done in the church. Um, I'm reminded as we open up this passage of Scripture of this truth, and that is that much of Scripture, if not all of it, is written for us, not necessarily to us. Let me say that again. Scripture is written for us not necessarily to us. You see, um, all of the scriptures that we have are, are at least a couple thousand years old to context and to people groups that lived in a time and a space that um, is not today. And when our culture, our current day culture, can't fully relate to past or biblical context, it's our responsibility to capture what God is saying and how it does indeed impact our our lives and our culture. We need to um, sift through. We need to prayerfully examine the scripture and say, well, what is being spoken here? What is God trying to convey for us? What was he trying to convey for people that lived 200 years ago? What was he conveying to the people that lived in that day in which it was written? Um, These are God's words. These words that we read that are maybe challenging for you to accept, um, challenging for you to understand. We need to recognize that these are God's words, not my words. Um, So we're going to see what we can learn. What can we grab that will apply um, in a timeless fashion um, for your life and for mine? And the first, we're going to talk about two different lines um, today. Um, One of the lines we're going to talk about is a line of distinction. A line of distinction. Now, we, as we just read this passage of Scripture about um, gender differences, uniquenesses, distinctions, um, Paul used language like head, who is the head um, in this relationship. Um, And so we've just stepped right now into a hot topic for the day, and that is gender distinction. Have you read about that or watched it on the news? There is all kinds of talk these days about gender distinction distinction. Um, Labels bathrooms, female protected athletics, policies, rights, pronouns. We are in the middle of a time in our generation and in our culture where gender and gender distinction is up for debate. Um, It's up for conversation and people are landing and getting hot under the collar on both sides or many different sides of gender um, conversations these days. Well, what were the Corinthian issues. What was going on in the day that Paul was writing to the people in Corinth? Well, do you remember that they had Jewish folks last week? We called them the religious folks, people with traditions, people with expectations on propriety and how things should happen and really being viewed as this is an order to honor God with these various rules. They were religious. They were rules oriented. They had these traditions. They also had head coverings and dress codes that women and men would be following. Now, Danita, my wife, she grew up in a context in a culture, in a church culture where head coverings were worn. She was raised as a Mennonite until she was six years old. Um, we talked to her parents who were raised completely in the Mennonite tradition. We talked to her grandparents and they were Amish as they were raised. And so um, in these cultures that are alive and well today, you've got um, you know people who have taken this passage of scripture quite literally, and they still are functioning with this. The, the necessity for the women to be wearing head coverings and for different kinds of dress, especially for church context. Um, we've even got here in our own in our own building that meets here um, a Hispanic, a Spanish speaking church, and the women when it comes to worship will wear a covering over their head for worship. And so, right here in our own community, we have got um, issues that really land right in the middle of what this passage of scripture is talking about. Now, at Rochester Life. We don't have any such rules like this, and so we're maybe looking at this passage of scripture and going, "Okay, what can we gain? Uh, are we doing something wrong in our church? What in the world's going on? If we don't have our the women in our church wearing head coverings, what do we have going on here?" Well, the the uh, Jewish people would have been coming with that perspective. Now, remember, though, there's Greeks, there's a Gentile people without these kind of rules who are also in the mix here in this church. No rules, no guidance. You might even say these uncultured swine. That's probably the kind of language that was being used by some of the Jewish or traditional people that were in this church, too, when they looked at people coming in and not honoring their traditions. You had secular people that are finding Christ and probably pushing the limits of societal norms that come with big city life, the big city of Corinth, Um, and all of these are clashing together. Um, Imagine for a moment the Jesus movement of the 70s. Maybe those of you who are alive and maybe some of you came to Christ then, and you had a generation of people who were falling in love with Jesus, but were not towing the line and following. Following suit with the way the church had functioned before. They were pushing the envelope on what was acceptable in church. Maybe you can um, connect or think about that tattooed, hat wearing worship leader of the 2000s that really pushed and made it challenging for some to worship the Lord under their leadership. Now, they probably, all these different groups of people, probably wrote to Paul. You know, there was letters going back and forth, and there was probably letters that were coming to Paul about this matter of dress code at church gatherings, saying, hey, we've got a problem. We've got people here who are not wearing head coverings. What do you have to say about that, Paul? And he probably had other letters coming and saying, these people are putting these rules on us. What do you have to say about that, Paul? I'll bet you some of the letters were um, written anonymous, too. I'm just going to guess. See, Paul responded responds um, to this with some directives. I can almost imagine him sitting at the table with pen and paper contemplating, now how do I address the issue in this particular church context while conveying God's timeless principles? And here he goes and here he gives us 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and he gives us some directives. So what are the timeless truths that Paul felt important to convey through this passage of Scripture? The first timeless truth I want to point out is that God commands equality and mutual dignity for both genders. Let me say that again. God commands equality and mutual dignity for both genders. And we actually find that in this passage of Scripture. Verse 3 says this, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, you probably are going, boy, this doesn't sound very equal to me. We're talking about labels being put on men and women and God and Christ here. And we've got this word head being used. Does this word head mean superiority? Does it mean someone who rules over someone else? Well, you might get that, um, when you hear the first phrase, when he says that the head of every man is Christ. And you go, well, maybe I can accept that. You know, Christ is superior. Christ is, you know, savior. Christ is God over man. Okay. I can accept that maybe superiority argument. And then you hear the next line, head of woman is man. And now you go, now wait a minute. You know, what, what's going on here? I thought that uh, we believed that men and women are equal, and indeed we do. Because then the next phrase here is, the head of Christ is God. Well, now let's try to figure this out, because I'm one who believes in a, the Trinity. I believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three equal aspects of God, the one true God, expressed in three personalities. So what we really need to say is if God is comparing um, Christ and man and man and woman and now God and Christ, we need to realize though, OK, what is he saying here? And really what he's talking about is roles, not value. He's talking about relationship, not superiority. He's talking about responsibilities, not power. Um, Verses 11 and 12 help us hear that and see that because he says this kind of concluding his thoughts. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman nor woman independent of man in the Lord. He's saying they're both needed. They both need one another. There is a mutual dignity and a mutual um, respect one for another. Verse 12 says, For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. Here Paul is even bringing a, an understanding that you learn in Genesis chapter 1, 27, when God created man and woman. And he said, So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female, He created them. He created both men and women, male and female, in His image, with equal um, value, with equal um, relationship with God, equal in every way. However, there's some differences, there's some distinctions. God's world declares equality, mutual value, both in the image of God. So now let's look at another timeless truth, because I don't believe that Paul in any way is putting women down in this passage of Scripture. Um, Because this next timeless truth says this, God calls us to celebrate the unique distinctions between men and women. What does the head of something do? What does the head of the physical body do? You've got the head here um, in relationship to the whole body. What does the head do? Well, the head will plan. The head prioritizes, the head protects, the head accepts responsibility for the rest of the body. The head is a strategic part of the body that takes some of these roles and responsibilities for the body. And one of the most important things I can see is this idea of protection and accepting responsibility. Think about an organization, a company, a church, a club, and what does the organization head do? Well, the organization head will plan, prioritize, protect, accept responsibility. When things go wrong, the head is the one whose head's gonna roll. Um, It's the head of an organization that accepts responsibility. Now, Paul shares in another letter that he wrote, and we're going to get to this also. This this book. In a few months. And that is, he wrote a letter to the Ephesians in this book, Ephesians and verse chapter five, verse 23 through 28, we find Paul giving a very more thorough description of the idea of man and woman, especially when it comes to man being the head. Um, verse 23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. So we've got this comparison. Husband, head of the wife, as... Christ is head of the church and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands and everything. Now you might be going, boy, this almost seems a little bit superiority stuff going on here, but here's where he shifts gear and explains it better. Verse 25, husbands love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Here we find here this description of the responsibility of the head. Um, it's one who sacrifices. It's one who loves. It's one who saves. It's one who goes the extra mile. It's one whose all out goal and responsibility is to care for and to take care of and to take care of all of the details related to the one he's serving, to his wife. The head is called to love and to protect. It's a lot of responsibility. It's absence of power mongering and abuse, it's caring and it's work. You see, it's a high calling, it's a high responsibility to be called the head. So then we also find here this discussion about head covering. Um, Verses 4 and 5 say this, because head coverings are maybe challenging for you and I to think about. We're not wearing head coverings necessarily, at least with any kind of rules or orientation in that way. And here we find Paul giving a an explanation about head coverings. I use that word very specifically, an explanation, because you might be tempted to read this as a prescription, um, where Paul is saying, here's what you must do. Here's your prescription, and you, if you were to take Paul's words as a prescription, especially a timeless prescription, you are going to have a challenging time in our culture making this a reality. The fact is, is that Paul's giving an explanation, probably explaining, here's the expectations of some in your church, so here's how you will do well, okay? So in verses four and five, it says, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered dishonors his head but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved all right so here we find here that when men pray with their head covered they were dishonoring their head now were they dishonoring their own head Or were they dishonoring the head as was described in the passage? The the description in the passage is, who's the head of the man? The head of the man is Christ. And so when man would worship with his head covered, he wasn't dishonoring himself or his own head. He was dishonoring Christ as he would do that. And it says when woman prays with her head uncovered, they were dishonoring their head, not their own head. But their head, their husband, they were dishonoring their husband when they worshiped and prophesied and prayed with their head uncovered. Now, what do you do? What do you do is not just about your own physical head. When you worship, when you um, conduct yourself in any setting, you are not only about yourself, but it reflects on the others around you, your social and your organizational head. Do you realize that when you conduct yourself in any way, you are not only um, representing you, but you're representing those who are in your tribe, those who are in your family, Family, especially those who are responsible and caring for you, those whose name you are called by. All right, and so when if man would come in in a way that was dishonoring to Christ then that would be a reflection on Christ. Or if in this setting, if the wife were to come in and do something in such a way that negatively reflected her husband, it's not only she she's representing, but she's also representing him. So why do I bring this up? Because we are called as Christ followers to Honor those we represent and honor those that we are around. We are to act in love and respect for those around us. For instance, you go to work and you're workplace, your boss, your overseer requires you to wear a certain kind of a thing, have your name tag on, um, have a, a particular kind of, of shirt, or a haircut, different shoes you wear. And most of us, because we want our paycheck and we want our job, we're going to honor that which is expected. So we go to work and we respect the rules and the dress code, go to school, do the same. Um, we are willing to do this for other things, but it seems like in our our culture, we've lost that level of respect for this entity we call the nuclear family. This family unit that is really the basis of all society and all relationships comes down to the family. And so I want you to think about a a moment when you've watched a gentleman walk into a room, walk into a setting, and he is uh, one who will take his hat off and show respect to the people that he just came in contact with. Uh, pardon me, ma'am, takes his hat off. Come to find out, I've done a little research, there's all kinds of rules about when a gentleman is supposed to take his hat off and when it's okay to leave it on. Public spaces is when he can leave it on, but things determined as a private space, a home, uh, maybe a particular room in a building, it's a private space and it's appropriate to take your hat off. That's the way a gentleman will do. And when a gentleman does that, when a gentleman takes his hat off, what he's doing is he's expressing a humility or an honor to those who he's come in the presence with. He takes that hat off and says, I'm here to serve you. There's something about that removal of the hat that shows honor. Now, this one's gonna be a little bit more challenging because we don't really have this context in most of our circles. But in the context that Paul was talking about women, women come into a worship gathering and her head is covered. And this was to show honor or respect to those around her, particularly to her husband. And in this way, it was a modesty. It was, it was a statement that I am, I am in honor and I am a part of somebody. I am in a relationship, I'm in a committed relationship, and it too expressed humility. And when we think about our time of worship, or our time of prophesy, our time of being together, and we are connecting as a church family, humility needs to be running at full strength. We need to be humbly Honoring One another in every way as we're worshiping because it's a reflection of our honor for God. It's a reflection of our worship of God as we worship him. So we treat those around us. And when we begin to get our um, horizontal relationships messed up, we are also messing up our vertical relationship. Um, Our relationships with one another absolutely reflect where we stand in our heart and our worship of God. Um, Humility is at the heart of it. And so that's why men would be um, in a place of taking their hat off for worship. It's a place of, I humbly respect you. And in this context, women would keep their head covered, also showing honor and humility to those in her family. Now. There was another issue that's going on here that Paul addressed, and that had to do with erasing gender distinction. Because in this church, he felt the need to write these words how a man should have his head uncovered and how a woman should have her head covered. And he had to write these things, he had to put these things on paper. So clearly, it was a problem going on in this church. And what was going on is that men. Probably, likely, were coming in and leaving their head covered, and women were coming in and their head was not covered. Ruffles were being, you know, um, you know, feathers were being ruffled by the people in the church. But also, what was going on was people were pushing the um, the traditions and pushing the envelope on the traditions, and there was a in erasing of the distinction between men and women. Paul talks about these head coverings and pointing out that the church was attempting to erase gender. Now, in the Corinthian church, segments of men were doing this. Segment of women were doing this. Does it sound a lot like what's going on within our own culture? Now, I'm not here trying to address our culture. I'm not trying to address what's going on in the news or going on in the schools, though I believe it's very important that we as a church affirm that we believe in men and women, one and two genders that God created in the image of God. And we um, embrace that truth. But one thing to note is that the rules that Paul gives about head coverings was a cultural, it was a church specific, and it might translate to many other cultures, but it doesn't necessarily be prescriptive of what we have to do in worship. Because if it's not in our culture to have our head covered, and that means humility, or to have our head uncovered, and that means humility, then that's not super relevant. In fact, Paul even brings that out in the last three or four, three verses here In verses 13 through 16, Paul says this. He ends it all. He's given all this prescription or explanation about things. And he says, judge among yourselves. He tells them, he writes them, judge among yourselves. Make your own decisions on how you want to operate with this. And he says, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? It's a question mark. He does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him. He's writing something about nature there. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her for her hair is given to her for a covering. But then he says in verse 16, but if anyone seems to be contentious, We have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. He basically says, judge among yourselves. We, if if there's anyone that's got a problem with this teaching, do what you will. That's Paul's final verdict there. And what I think that we need to take away here is what he was trying to convey is honor, respect, and um, that there is a distinction, indeed a distinction, between men and women and roles and responsibilities and servanthood. So this is a line that is very important that we draw a line of distinction between men and women and their extreme value, their extreme dignity, as they were both created in the image of God. But then he goes on to another but related topic, and it's the topic of communion. So here we are still focusing on our worship experience when you come together. And here we're going to call this line a line of inclusion, a line of inclusion. If you want to start blurring lines, um, don't focus on gender. Those are lines that are supposed to be in place, But rather on economics, on social economics, on the things that separate people, we need to blur those lines. We need to get rid of the, the distinction between race. We need to get rid of the distinction between the rich and the poor, people from one side of the tracks versus another. Um, those lines need to um, get blurred a little bit because we, they, Paul found out in this church in Corinth that they were not treating the time of communion in the way that they should because they were drawing a line and excluding people that were not, um, you know, I'm just going to say it, that were not um, rich or wealthy or well-to-do, but rather they were excluding the poor. So here's Paul's call-out. 1 Corinthians 11 verses 17 through 22. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. Since you come together, Not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there uh, must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have um, houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. What Paul here is talking about is that the... Church had begun to draw lines of separation between various categories of people, particularly the rich and the poor. And here he's saying that it is necessary that when you come together, that you share the Lord's Supper all together as one body. All right. It's not merely for eating. You don't come together for the Lord's Supper to eat. And that's apparently what was going on. In the name of Christ, they're eating their food and they're doing it. One eating ahead of the other. There's no unity in the mix here. And he's saying this is not about eating. Don't you have houses to go eat and drink in? But rather, when you come together... Um, In a time and a place of unity, um, it is not about eating, but rather it's for worship. When you take the Lord's Supper, it's for worship. Verse 26 says this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And you see, that's a worship. It's a proclamation. It's a declaration that is to be expressed in unity. It's not for exclusion. But it's rather for inclusion, that when people come into your doors and they are finding Christ, that we include them regardless of their background, regardless of, their, of the place they were when they first found Christ. They come in and they're part of the body of Christ. Um, he makes reference about including the poor in this action of communion. Verse 21 says, For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. Verse 33, Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. It is not um, for ritual but for self-examination. Paul's saying that this is a time when you ought not just do this thing um, either carelessly or doing it mindlessly, but rather you do it cautiously. You do it with a heart of self-examination. I want to I read this passage of scripture um, that often is not read um, at time of communion. There is a portion we will read that is very common at communion time. But um, verse 28 through 32 says, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world." Now, I'm going to invite you, because we are going to take this opportunity together to worship the Lord with communion. We're going to take of the bread and take of the cup, as the scripture says. And in just a a moment, we're going to have our worship team is going to lead us in a song. And it's going to be an opportunity, one, for you to go get your communion elements together, in case you haven't done that already. But, But also, to take this portion of this song to contemplate some of the things we've talked about because you might have some lines that are drawn in your life that are not right. Maybe you have blurred the whole um conversation, the lines between genders. Maybe you've gotten confused on some things. Maybe you've not been conducting yourself um, lately in your relationships with humility and with honor and with respect. This would be a perfect time for you to come before the Lord, ask for forgiveness and repentance and to honor yourself in humility to him. Take this as an opportunity to examine yourself. As the scripture said that we just read, we would examine, we'd look deep into our hearts and say, Lord, if there's any wayward way in me please uh, direct me to you I humbly ask for your forgiveness so I'm going to ask right now that you would uh, take those and go get those communion elements let this song speak to you let it be an environment that's created that you can worship the Lord confess your sin to him and be ready that together we can take this communion so would you do that now
2: Give me eyes to see more of who you are. May what I behold still my anxious heart. Take what I have known and break it all apart. For you, my God, are greater still. Let's sing that again. Give me eyes. Give me eyes to see more of who you are.
1: you have You've prayed, you've examined your heart, you've asked the Lord to show you anything in you that's not uh, been honoring or humble, that's blurred some lines or has drawn some lines that shouldn't have been drawn. Um, It's our opportunity now to accept the work of Jesus Christ because he is the one who's paid the price for all of our lack of judgment, all of our our sinful ways and our sinful thoughts. And I want to read the passage of scripture that you have heard many times. Times, and it's right in the middle of 1 Corinthians 11, and it says this: For I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, "Take, eat; this is my body, which is broken for you." Do this in remembrance of me. Lord, together we hold this communion bread. Lord God, we, we hold it and we recognize that your body was broken for us. And Lord, we recognize that some of our thoughts and some of our ways have missed the mark. Um, some of the ways, some of the lines we've drawn and the, and the pride that we've had, Lord, has separated us from you. But you, Lord, allowed yourself to be broken in the same manner in which we ourselves and our hearts have been broken. And Lord, you paid the price for our sins, so we receive this bread now. Let's take together. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord, we take this cup, and Lord, we recognize it to represent the spilled blood of Jesus. We recognize it to be that which paid the penalty for sin. Lord, this blood that was shed on the cross and represented through this cup, Lord, was our price to pay. But Lord, you paid it for us, that we might stand before you righteously. We pray, Lord, that because of your work and because of this um, price that was paid, that you would give us, oh Lord, a, a cleanness, that you would help us to think more like you think, that you would purify our thoughts and purify our attentions. And Lord, we humbly receive this cup representing your blood in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord want to invite you to move into the rest of this week with the desire to humble yourself before the Lord. That that would be front and center in all contexts. That relationships that need to be made right would be made right. Honor given where honors due. Um, Next week, we're going to be wrapping up this series called Church Problems with a message on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, The gifts of the Holy Spirit have become a dividing point for so many churches. We hope to bring a lot of clarity. We hope to convey the heart of Jesus as He empowers um, His church with the gifts of the Spirit. I hope that you will find it to be a great wrap-up to this series. Uh, We'll catch you next week. God bless.